You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. The first thing I want to speak about this week is something you hear very little about here in Israel, but it's something that is of deep and long-lasting importance. And I'm speaking of the fact that the Israeli police are currently facing the most serious crisis in their history. The first cause is something which is long-standing. Over the years, the issue of public security has not received the place it deserves on the national agenda, believe it or not. There are all kinds of crises, climate change, pandemics, cybercrime, terrorism, violent crime. It's become increasingly clear how vital it is in a democratic state like Israel to have a strong, effective police force. Due to the ongoing Israeli security situation, and years of wars against external enemies and terrorism, the center of gravity has traditionally been on security and defense. This finds expression in the investment of national resources. It turns out that the police's image has a low place in decision-making. In reality, there's no doubt that the police have always been involved in obviously all aspects of life, and they pretty much act like a national emergency room, investigating public officials, tackling corruption, fighting crime, and indeed combating terrorism also. Yet, the police in Israel is pretty much of a punching bag for the public. There will always be those unhappy if they get a fine for parking or for going through a red light or if they're arrested for some reason or they face face indictment. So the, uh, the police are seen in these cases and quickly... Uh, slandered, and this pretty much damages the organization, and ultimately, the ability of the police to function is based on public faith. When this faith is not there, or it's, or it's eroded, the public stops cooperating with the police. Now, on the flip side of this, criminals stop being deterred and criminals become even more bold about committing crimes. So what happens is that the country is sent down into a sharp, slippery slope. On top of this, the way a police force is seen from the outside seeps into the organization itself. Police officers want to feel motivated, but the more the media attacks the police, the harder it is for officers in the police force to find the will to stay. 
if you complete always acted against by the public um, the news and things in the papers and the television be obviously police officers want to be motivated growing numbers are finding reasons to leave the fact that salaries are ridiculously low that they work 24 7 they endanger their lives they're not paid for extra hours no union rights and poor employment conditions, all this only add to the desire of some police officers to quit, or people not even to join the police. Despite public perception, not anyone can become a police officer. It's a profession that requires over a year of training followed by further on-the-job qualification. Now, what happens is, after all this, when an officer leaves, particularly soon after becoming an officer, major resources get thrown away. Now, because there are personnel shortages, the qualification processes have been shortened to get policemen on the street more quickly. So what happens is you let you end up with police officers with lower professional capabilities. And so what happens is you create a vicious cycle. Now today we are in the era which you, you can call post-pandemic. A new generation has no hesitation about moving jobs. I've seen that in my own family. My, particularly among my own grandchildren. People change jobs quite often. They don't have the loyalty they used to have to the company where they work. This is a fact of life. So when police officers no longer receive pensions of a good size, and where there are many tempting job opportunities outside the police force, including, by the way, some very comfortable work-from-home jobs, many are leaving the police force, are willing to risk their lives for low salaries and widespread contempt. By the way, uh, I was talking to one of my grandchildren the other day. Uh, they work. They have a regular job. And they told me they only work three days a week. The other days, they work on Zoom. They don't go in. Now, a policeman can't do that. Policemen's got to be on the job by the very nature of the job. Now, the um, another thing that's happened, which is really really bad, is the public security ministers, one after another, have avoided appointing commissioners for years. They choose to work with acting commissioners instead, meaning that long-term planning and force buildup are impossible. If you keep changing who's running the police force, you know you don't have one someone at the top planning the long term. The minister's approve, uh, uh, refusal to appoint commissioners was is also a statement how they viewed the importance of the police. Apparently, an organization that doesn't really feel needed. Uh, especially by the ministers, then a commissioner isn't very important. Now, 
the um, something has just happened now since this new government took office, and it's complicated the issue even more. The National Security Minister, Itamar Ben-Gvir, has been convicted himself several offenses and has highly aggressive policies developing now regarding his ministerial mandate and his approach to the police, and in particular, to the police chief. And this is quite important, the minister's approach to the police chief. If someone convicted of, of criminal offenses becomes the head of the police, what does that really mean? Could something similar happen to the Shin Bet or the Israeli army? This development further suggests that the government doesn't think that the police force is very important. If the guy who heads the police force, or the minister that is, has himself been in jail. So the, um, the coalition agreements today stipulate that national security ministers' right to directly activate the police, and Ben-Gvir uh, has made a call to set up a national guard under his direct authority rather than that of the police. Now, all of this sends the same message about the low rating that the police force has. And worse still, they threaten to infect the police with politics, something that must never happen in a country that wants to remain democratic. Only the police commissioner should activate the police. The minister who is in charge of the police should focus on policies, not on how the police should be activated on a day-to-day -day basis. I think that's very important. Now, some of the things that happen in Israel that, that involve the police is the fact that there have been some widespread rioting in the Arab-Israeli areas. There was a political deadlock today with 30 weeks of mass protests, uh, skyrocketing Arab sector crime, and an almost full neutralization of the police's ability to employ technology like cyber and signals intelligence. And the police essentially are low on the, uh, on the scale of attention of what's important for the country. Now, the, uh, it's pretty obvious to me, and I'm not an expert, that the, the police have very few tools and abilities to deal with the many challenges that it faces. Now, essentially, it's being told to fight crime, increasing crime, in a situation they're essentially blindfolded. Now, it's what really is required are bold decisions on the part of the government for the future. First, the police must be defined as a critical pillar in national resilience. Next, governments must allocate to police suitable financial and personnel resources. Now, billions, actually, of additional shekels 
and thousands of extra personnel. The billions that were promised to the police concurrently do not appear to be materializing. Police must also be allowed, under supervision of course, to employ technological means or there will be no meaningful war against crime for the next century. It's a serious problem. State leaders need to begin publicly backing the police, and it means also not ignoring them during the annual torchlighting ceremony on Independence Day. The police are ignored. And promoting a new national narrative that can't it, that's not focused primarily on the military. In Israel, when it comes to the forces that protect us, the primary attention is paid to the military, and that's true. But we have to worry about internal security, and in that case, attention has to be paid to the police. There is domestic prob there are domestic problems and there are foreign problems. Foreign, when I say foreign, I mean outside the country. Unfortunately, Israel, some of the foreign problems are inside the country also, but that's the Army's job. You know, there are jobs for the police, really important. So when, when the public receives good service from a police force that receives proper investment, when calls to the emergency hotline are answered effectively, when community police officers check in and investigations don't end abruptly, that's important. I remember, by the way, when I was a kid in the United States, and I don't think this is true anymore, there were policemen who did what was called walking the beat. There was a policeman who a cop, a cop on the beat. I remember when I was raised in, in North Philadelphia, there was a policeman who appeared several times a day. He walked by came in, he said hello to everybody. My father had a pharmacy, and the cop used to come in, have a soda, spend a few minutes. Everybody knew that there was a policeman handy, and he even knew his name. I mean, remember, in the case of our neighborhood, he was called Jimmy the Cop, big Irishman. But we knew that there was police there when we needed them. So... The, uh, the the new Israeli National Guard, if there's going to be one, must operate under police command, not under a civilian ministry headed by a minister. It's, the police have to be seen as the police. The, um, the There is no doubt, and because of the type they work, they have to do every day, that the commanders... The officers and the volunteers in the Israeli police are dedicated and try to be professional. They must foil terrorism. They have to foil uh, homicides. They have to prevent accidents. They have to fight drugs. They have a lot of jobs. The second largest organization in Israel, which is really the police, must receive a higher spot on the national priority list and it may also get practical recognition and financial support as a critical pillar in national security and in our national resilience. 
It's, you know, when you, t- you ask anybody uh, in or out of Israel, you say, you know, who are the forces that are protecting us? They say the army. That is true. But it is not just the army. It's also the police. And uh, when, I, when I have to worry about someone uh, robbing my apartment, I have to turn to the police, not to the army. So the police have to get more recognition, both in public confidence and in the public view, and in the way they are compensated for their work. That's something that is very, at the moment, lacking in Israel. It doesn't get the headlines. I saw an article about it in one of the Hebrew newspapers on page 11. To give you an idea of the importance it has in the public eye, that's a mistake. The army's important, obviously, but so are the police. The next subject I want to talk about to you, fill out the end of this portion of my program, is something which, in a sense, is sort of related to the police, but not completely. Uh, what happened is that the health ministry has... Uh, been fighting the use of uh, conventional tobacco and electronic cigarettes. So uh, two weeks ago, they issued a request for public comments on what they called an action plan for all tobacco and smoking products. It includes plans to eventually prohibit smoking under the age of 21. Today, the smoking age is 18. They want to make it 21, which, by the way, is rather interesting. It was just the other way in the United States. When I was a kid, uh, it was 21. I believe that it remained the same. I don't know. It may have dropped to 18. So the health minister said that the phenomenon of smoking is very worrying And under our leadership, we're determined to promote measures to reduce smoking, increase awareness of the harm that smoking causes. This demands a complex and joint effort, and the government says they're committed to implementing the policy in a variety of areas of prevention and to encourage people to quit smoking. So they, uh, they claim that they've examined all possible measures and they continue to act in many ways in order to raise awareness of the dangers of uh, using these products. And they want to they uh, develop a strict policy and even what they call dramatic measures required by the necessity of reality. But it's clear in one of one of their statements, or if they're a long, complicated statement about what they want to do, they ended up by just as a final line. They said, "Best way to stop smoking is simply not to start smoking." Okay. The uh, by the way, the current Israeli smoking rate in ages twenty is about twenty percent, which is far higher than the average in most Western countries. The uh, the, so they have they published an action plan to deal with the harms of tobacco products and smoking. However, the the, the plan doesn't have a timetable, and it hasn't really does it's not budgeted, and it's just so far it's a lot of words. 
the uh, the there is no ministry in a sense that's uh, that's in charge of fighting smoking. Now it turns out there is something called the Israel Council for the Prevention of Smoking, which is not a government organization. Which they uh, so when they heard that the government is coming up with new ideas. They said that these completely ignored the need to protect people from enforced smoking. This includes the protection for the incursion of smoke into other people's homes. So smoking is an issue. Israelis are big on smoking, and they're going to have to do something about it. Uh, what they're going to do, I have absolutely no idea, and I think they also don't have an idea, any idea. I'll be back after the break. Be smart. Listen to Israel News Talk Radio in the background while you work and get the latest news and commentary from Israel. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I would like to address a problem which may become very realistic in the near future and it affects our daily lives, and our safety here in Israel. We have to ask ourselves a question. What would happen if the Palestinian Authority suddenly collapses? Back in the beginning of July, the Security Cabinet of Israel actually approved a measure which is called to prevent the collapse of the Palestinian Authority. The measure came with a list of conditions which included that the Palestinian Authority stop attacking Israel in both legal and political forums, that the Palestinian Authority stop incitement in their media and in their education, that they halt the pay for slate payments in which terrorists and their families are compensated for acts of terror, and refrain from building an Area C of what's called the West Bank. Area C is that part of the uh, uh, Eretz Israel that was allotted to Israel and the Oslo agreements, and they're illegally building there. Now, Israel came up with this uh, measure to keep the Palestinian Authority from collapsing, and Palestinian officials rejected what the Israeli government did. Now, what is the Palestinian Authority? It's existed since the early 1990s, but I think it's important that we know what it is. The Palestinian Authority is a self-governing body established in 1994 as part of the so-called Oslo Accords. It exercises partial government of two areas of Judea and Samaria. They are called areas A and B, and they maintain administrative control over civil matters 
like uh, education and healthcare and public services. Now, at the bottom line, the Palestinian Authority was intended to serve as an interim government that would pave the way for a future independent Palestinian state that would be achieved through negotiations with Israel. That's what the Oslo Agreement was all about. And also, the Palestinian Authority controlled the Gaza Strip. Now, this was true until January 2006, when the Hamas terror group won the parliamentary elections, which was about a year after Israel's disengagement from Gaza. That was a very traumatic time for Israel. Turned out, of course, to be a big mistake. So the, uh, the Palestinians refused to compromise with Israel, and uh, it's failed to really govern the area that was assigned to it. So it's made it it's become very unpopular and has left many Palestinians to turn to more radical groups instead. The uh, unpopularity of the Palestinian Authority has radicalized many Palestinians who turn to the terror groups. In no way is the Palestinian Authority an ideal partner for Israel. Now, at the same time, Israel's uh, government is trying to save the Palestinian Authority because the alternative is worse. Now, those who understand what's happening in the so-called West Bank is that if the, if the Palestinian Authority collapses, something much worse will likely take its place. The fall of Abbas and his failed government would open the door for Hamas and other terror, terror groups that are backed by the Iranians, and they're just waiting to take over if and when the Palestinian Authority collapses. They're just waiting for their opportunity. The bottom line is that Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority have spent two decades in power and they have achieved absolutely nothing. So uh, the Palestinian Authority is extremely unpopular among the Palestinians. For example, two Palestinian officials were chased away by mourners from the funeral of the 12 militants that Israel killed recently. Later that same day, Palestinian security forces used tear gas on protesters throwing stones at the security headquarters in Ramallah. Now, it's become abundantly clear that the Palestinian Authority has simply no credibility among the Palestinian people. So much so that it can no longer police the northern part 
of what's called the West Bank, the area around the city of Jenin. The best that the Palestinian Authority can do is stay out of Israel's way when the Israeli army needs to intervene and conduct counter-term operations to prevent incoming attacks on Israel. This has led to many Palestinians labeling Abbas as a collaborator with Israel. So there's a lot of animosity, there's more hate of the Palestinian Authority among the population, and the situation is far from what was the vision back in the early 1990s when Arafat and his gang were brought back from Tunisia to create the Palestinian Authority. Now, one of the main reasons that, uh, as I understand it, that Abbas is unpopular because he is one of the last politicians who uh, pretends to believe in normalization with Israel, and he calls for a two-state solution publicly. Now, among the Palestinians themselves, apparently he doesn't always call for a two-state solution, but he does it publicly among other nations like the European nations, and the Palestinians are aware of this. So the, uh, the average Palestinian, Palestinian, as I understand it, has suffered too long on the reality of the Palestinian Authority, which is for all practical purposes a failed government <clears throat> with two of them full of empty promises, and the idea of a two-state solution is simply a joke today. <clears throat> now, the, uh, there is an organization, I don't know who runs it, but it's always quoted. It's called the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research. Now, they did a report earlier this year, and it shows that most of the Palestinian public believes the collapse of the Palestinian Authority would be a good thing. And the same survey shows that support for radicalized groups <clears throat> other than the Palestinian Authority is growing, and fewer and fewer Palestinians actually support a two-state solution. About 68% of the survey respondents supported terror groups. Another relevant and unpleasant factor is that the Palestinians feel that the Palestinian Authority has been able to, unable to protect its civilians from Israeli attacks, which have now increased since a new right-wing government has been established in Israel. In truth, Israel is now attempting to save the Palestinian Authority. However, the chances are that such an attempt will lead to nowhere. Because among other things, the Palestinian Authority 
would never accept Israel's conditions. Because if it did so, it would lose total support among the Palestinians. Now, the, so the Palestinian Authority is now seeking, as I understand it, to revive a formation of some kind of a national unity government, including Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. In other words, the Palestinian Authority which is totally helpless, wants to bring the other terrorist groups into a coalition. So where does this all lead to for Israel? And again, I admit I'm not a great uh, analyst of politics, but I read the papers, I watch the news, and I see what's going on. And uh, once in a while, I actually occasionally talk to a Palestinian. We have some who come to work in our area, and although I don't like to talk politics with them, once in a while we somehow slip lightly into the subject, and it's apparent they're very unhappy with the Palestinian authority. Now, what could happen is the area called the West Bank could turn into something like the Gaza Strip, where the Palestinian Authority was thrown out and the terrorists actually took over. That's what happened in the Gaza Strip. And it could well be that it would be supported by Iran. So Iran would have a stronger foothold here in this region. So uh, also, you know, at the moment, Israel has a, a, some form of security cooperation with the Palestinian Authority. But if that disappears, who, know, who knows to where it can lead? So the truth of the matter is, with or without the Palestinian Authority, Israel has been able to show, thank God, that we'll do whatever we must to keep our citizens safe, and to stop Iran from gaining more power in the West Bank than it already has. But the situation in the West Bank, in what we call Judea and Samaria, is nothing whatever like what was predicted back in the 19, early 1990s. That is the situation today. Now I want to completely change the subject and talk about something else, which is the impending crisis of doctors here in Israel. The, a few years ago, the um, Bloomberg's Global Health Review ranked Israel sixth in the world for efficiency and seventh in quality of service. Something called the OECD Forum of Developed Economies has stated that Israel has established one of the most enviable healthcare systems. And the truth of the matter is, Israel has terrific statistics for life expectancy, infant mortality, vacation rates, and shortage of waiting lists. The, um, 
The, uh, it's interesting that uh, during the healthcare crisis, the COVID-19 pandemic, Pfizer chose to prioritize supplying vaccinations to Israel because it knew that it would reach the population very rapidly. Israel has a network of community health clinics that reaches all parts of the country and guarantees rapid mass inoculation and a digitized medical data bank allows for very rapid and detailed information on the efficacy of the vaccine for different demographic segments. Now, the Israeli public health system's high international ratings stem pretty much from what has happened in Israel's history. I want to close with something which is really under the radar, really, but it's interesting. In a widely predicted move, the American Anthropological Association, known as the AAA, has now joined the Middle East Studies Association, called the MESA, and adopting a boycott of Israeli universities. It represents a turning point in the discipline of anthropology and a milestone in the fall of American academia as a whole. This resolution was adopted by a large margin of its members about three weeks ago. Uh, it uh, prohibits Israeli universities from advertising in their journals and participating in other organizational activities. The resolution will certainly act as a blacklist and a litmus test for Israeli and Jewish anthropologists in the context of university departments, classrooms, where anti-Israel feeling has reached pretty high levels. And the, the resolution's unstated rationale is the creation of a false consensus that will isolate Israel, vilify its supporters, and thereby contrib contribute to what they consider the cause of peace in the Middle East. And they put out a report and said the Israeli state operates an apartheid regime from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, including internationally recognized State of Israel, the Gaza Strip, and the West Bank. And Israeli academic institutions are complicit in the Israeli state's regime of oppression against Palestinians, including by providing research and development of military and surveillance technologies used against Palestinians. So uh, anthropology was once a discipline which tried to understand culture. However, it has deliberately transformed itself into a discipline that purports to study power in the process arrogating to itself re regarding the final word regarding forms of justice, whether it's environmental justice, social justice, 
historical and such. So the the uh, Anthropological Association, the, the American Anthropological Association, <coughs> has simply turned anti-Semitic. It's way under the headlines, but it's interesting that an academic group has become anti-Semitic without most of the world taking notice. I'll be back after the break. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips with scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candle lighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro, and I want to say a few words how the Jewish schools in the United States have to have a security blueprint. I want to start with an example which can be used by other communities and is something that has already happened. Several weeks ago, an armed individual attempted to enter the Margoan Hebrew Academy in Memphis, Tennessee, with the obvious intention of shooting innocent people inside the building. Too many times after an act of targeted violence, we hear people say, I never thought it could happen here, but it can. In this instance, in Memphis, Memphis, it almost did. But this story has a different ending. The shooter was unable to enter the building he was identified within moments. He was located and apprehended by law enforcement. These actions together saved innocent lives. Now, while some may attribute his failure to luck, it's not true. This outcome was no accident. It was the results of years of planning and preparation planning that every Jewish community should undertake to protect themselves and their organizations. In the case of Memphis, back in 2018, the Memphis Jewish Federation partnered with an organization called Secure Community Network, SCM, and together they hired a full-time community security director. Since then, the Memphis Jewish community and its many institutions, uh, 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 there are a lot of institutions involved, they all work together, training and preparing to mitigate attacks just like the one that happened. 
the they created a proactive, protective field over the Jewish community. Since 2018, in this case of Memphis, the security director visited the campus nine times, conducting walkthroughs, threat and vulnerability assessments, security trainings, and grant consult consultations which supported the Institute in order to receive 150000 in 2022 and an additional 150000 in 2023 from the Department of Homeland Security to ensure their safety and security. These funds were used to have access control, a series of doors that prevent visitors from entering a facility unless they're approved to do so. The one who tried to enter the uh, in the building in Memphis could not enter the building proper. The security improvements led to the installation of video cameras that captured images of the shooter, which were used to immediately identify and locate him after he fled the scene. Memphis's full professional community security directors sent a shelter place alert to all the Jewish institutions in the Memphis area to prevent the shooter from pursuing additional targets. This will not be the last attack perpetrated against a school or a Jewish institution. This is the unfortunate fact. Some 2% of the U.S. population is Jewish, yet 58% of faith-based hate crimes target Jews. But just because we know an incident will occur does not mean that we, the community has to be helpless. Institutions can be prepared and that starts with implementing a comprehensive and thorough security initiative the same way the Memphis Jewish Federation did. There are a lot of things that perhaps four major things that every community must do. First, they have to get a security assessment. Developing a security strategy starts with an assessment of a facility and how vulnerable it is and how it can be strengthened. There are all kinds of security networks, professionals, who are available to provide these assessments. Now, physical security is another item that has to be bolstered. Common elements of many physical security plans include panic buttons, placed at key locations around the facility, which automatically lock external doors or, build and, or have bullet or impact-resistant glass. The Memphis shooter actually fired shots around the building, so it's important that all facilities have a hardened exterior. Jewish facilities should also apply for federal grants, which are available to support their physical security plans. Additionally, it's necessary to provide 
facility diagrams to local law enforcement and develop a strong relationship with law enforcement. First responders must have fast access to study the inside of a facility. No one should wait until crisis occurs to learn a location. Security must be trained over and over again. Training for all community members is essential. It can never be one or done. Every facility throughout the United States should be trained. The, it is really important because the Jewish community is a target, but we don't have to let the Jewish communities be victims. Preventing deadly attacks is possible, and the, the Hebrew Academy in Memphis faced a true test of its planning and preparations, and the truth of the matter is, all Jewish facilities in the United States must learn from this event and commit to action. There is no need to reach a stage where we mourn, because preparation can win the day. So I've uh, um, mentioned this in detail because it actually happened, the community was prepared, and other communities should learn from it. Now I want to go on to a different topic, which is quite important. Back in the year 2001, the Prime Minister of Israel was Ariel Sharon, and he gave a speech, and he said, Israel will not be Czechoslovakia. What he meant was, Israel is increasingly concerned that the United States intended to advance relations with the Arab world at the expense of vital Israeli interests. To put it mildly, the administration wasn't pleased with the analogy with the Munich Agreement. It bothered those in power in the United States then. The president purported contacts today with Iran on the nuclear issue have now reminded some observers of that situation back in 2001. Now, the, the U.S. president says the United States will not allow Iran to acquire nuclear weapons. Now, that may be true, but we really can't rely on that. There is a lack of clarity with regards to the international supervision of what actually goes on in Iran. For example, they're constructing new underground nuclear facilities. And no less important, what means, if any, Washington might use if Tehran were to violate its obligations? This is an extremely important issue for the state of Israel. A former senior State Department official named Dennis Ross, who really was well-versed in Iran's intentions, said uh, that the Biden administration does not have the appetite for a new crisis in the Middle East. History teaches us that back in 1938, Britain and France did recognize the threat of Nazi Germany 
but he preferred to postpone taking a stand regarding Germany. That could be the situation today. Now, the we really don't know what's happening between the United States and Iran. What kind of negotiations are taking place in secret? According to ostensibly authorized sources, the proposed agreements involve an Iranian commitment not to enrich uranium beyond 90%, which is a level sufficient for producing the nuclear bomb, albeit without specifying for how long Iran will obey what it's committed to. According to the sources, the United States will release $20 billion frozen by sanctions on Iran for what they call humanitarian purposes, whatever that means. Now, these American negotiators seem to have ignored uh, something that was said years ago by Secretary of State James Baker. He said, money is fungible. In effect, Iran will have no difficulty replacing the amount unfrozen with other funds and continue bankrolling its military and terrorist activities, including those of Hezbollah, Hamas, and the Islamic Jihad, which they are funding. Limit limitations on the export of Iranian oil will also be eased and perhaps removed entirely. So the, uh, there's all kind of people blaming the U.S. for Iran becoming part of an axis of, uh, of authoritarians comprising China and Russia. So in order to avoid submitting the emerging agreement for approval by the Senate, which is required by American law, they wanted to classify the agreed terms with Iran as understandings, which is a definition convenient also to the Iranians should they go back on any of all their commitments. None of this is aimed at reaching a groundbreaking agreement but rather an attempt to buy time and to alleviate the current tension. Buying time is also the key term in connection with the approaching U.S. presidential elections. We have to keep in mind, Iran is threatening to destroy Israel, and we're watching as the United States in particular is involved in all kind of negotiations which to Israel do not make sense. All the attention of the decision makers in Israel should be upon the threat of Iran. The, uh, the we must create a strategic response to Iran. And hopefully this is the preference of our prime minister now, our government's official position is an agreement with Iran, depending on its contents, will not obligate Israel. But the potential implications of this policy cannot avoid certain questions. In the past, our Prime Minister Netanyahu 
has successfully focused on raising and coordinating global opposition to Iran's nuclear program. But as to developing a possible Israeli independent course of action, any decision cannot completely disregard the role of the United States, whether in providing assistance or as an active partner. But they could also be a, the United States could also be a hindrance. Now, former President Donald Trump's strategy of forcing Iran to abandon its nuclear plans in order to avoid complete economic collapse could eventually have succeeded. But following the change of administration back in the U.S. in 2020, when Biden took over, it's this option is off the agenda. The, uh, the former head of strategy at Israel General Staff has stated in a recent interview that while Israel has operational plans to derail Iran's nuclear project, these would also have to take into consideration the active or passive role of the United States. In addition to possible consequences for Israel's relations with the future and current Arab partners. So Israel have to make a lot of very serious decisions that have to do with the future of the state. Now, as a general rule, uh, what I said in the last few minutes is not the kind of subject that I talk about on my program because it is a serious subject that requires a lot of knowledge, and I simply know what I read in the newspapers, what I see on television, what I hear on the radio, and I try, of course, like uh, most uh, uh, observers, to read between the lines. But we're talking now with the possibility of Iran getting a nuclear weapon and they've stated that they would like to wipe Israel off the map. That is something that we really have to deal with. And again, I generally don't talk about such serious things on this program. These are, these are best subjects left for programs that appear on a daily basis, so comments can be made as things change. But it's a very, very serious subject. And the reason that I chose to mention it on my program. Again, I'm not an expert. I only know what I, what I read and what I see. But the very future of the state of Israel, the very future of myself, my children, my grandchildren, and those of all those I know and all my neighbors and all the population here is an extremely serious business. So I've chosen to mention it, even though, of course, I don't have any solutions. But I want the listeners to know that it's something that is worrying, and hopefully our government is doing something about it. Every time we read in the news something about our government, it's always about these uh, these little arguments between the various ministers and all these little things that in the long run are of no consequence. 
They just fill up the daily newspapers and the daily news reports, and they give people something to read about and to agree with or not agree with. Like, for example, there are thousands of people taking to the streets because of a change the government wants to make in the Supreme Court. That, of course, is important, very important, but not as important as one of our outspoken enemies getting a nuclear weapon that could destroy us. And that is why it is something we have to keep our eye on and hope that our government is doing something about it. All the rest, no matter how important it looks at the moment, is really trivia compared the the the, the uh, threat to our very existence and something that we have to be aware of and keep our eye on it and hope that our government is doing whatever is necessary to ensure that our future is we can be confident about our future so we continue to worry about the trivial things after that. First, we have to worry that we exist, and then we can pay attention to all the trivia that happens after we exist already. I know that sounds odd, but these, these are the facts. These are my thoughts. I want to share them with the listeners. I'll be back after the break. One Minute of Torah. In our Torah portion, Kitetzei, Moses tells the Jewish people that when they go out to war upon their enemies, God will deliver their enemies into their hands. Why does Moses say upon your enemies and not with or against? With these words, Moses was teaching us the secret to our success in battle. Victory is assured to us only when we go out upon our enemies, when we fight from a higher plane than them. Stooping down to fight at their level will only harm us. Like Rabbi Shneur Zalman of the Adi says, one who wrestles with a dirty opponent becomes dirty himself. What battles are we talking about in our day? Any sort of opposition or negativity from inside or out to goodness and growth. We must remember that we will succeed in vanquishing it only when our war is waged from above, from a place of godliness, a place of holiness, a place of recognition that our strength lies in our divine soul and connection and that nothing can truly oppose God Almighty. With your eye chairman of Torah, this is Chava Zuhavich. You're back with Jay Shapiro, and uh, in this uh, segment of the program, I want to touch upon a number of items that I think should interest the listeners. They're not related to each other, and also they are in the category of what I like to call under the radar. You don't see them on the front pages of the papers or in the headlines, but they, I believe, should be of interest to those who are interested in what's happening in Israel and what's happening to the Jewish people in general. The first item has to do with a study conducted during 2022 and 2023 with, uh, done by the Pew Research Study, which is one that has a tremendous uh, uh, respect. It's got tremendous respect as its numbers being accurate. And uh, when they do uh, research, 
and particularly when they uh, do studies based on opinion, they make sure to take into account the proper percentages of people so they can draw conclusions. So in general, they found in 2022 and 2023, there was some difference of opinion about Israel depending on age group and affiliation. For example, Americans over 65 years of age had an almost 70% favorable view of Israel compared those between the ages of 30 and 49, which only have 49%, and it drops to 41% in the under 30 age bracket. So in general, the older Americans are, I think that's what we can conclude, the older Americans are, the more they are, they are to have a, a positive, favorable view of Israel. Now, divided by parties, Republicans support Israel a little over 70%, compared to Democrats, where it's a little less than 45%. In other words, uh, the uh, Republicans seem to have a considerably higher favorable view of Israel than the Democrats do. I think that's the important uh, thing to draw from these without going to the exact numbers. Then they divide it up by uh, uh, religions also. Among American Protestants, a little over 60% have favorable views as opposed to a little over 40% of the religiously unaffiliated. In other words, Protestants have more favorable views about Israel than people who don't claim any religion. White evangelicals, this is interesting, white evangelicals are the highest level of support at 80%. Jewish and Muslim Americans could not be given a figure due to sample size restrictions, whatever that means. Now, while less than half of Americans view Israel's government favorably, two-thirds have a positive image of the Israeli people. In other words, the the, uh, according to this, Americans like Israel better, the Israelis better, than they like the Israeli government. Now, by the way, this is similar to the way that many countries are perceived abroad from the United States. The Americans have an opinion that they like the people in the other countries, they don't like the governments in the other countries. Now, uh, a surprising Uh, 26% of Americans said they had never heard of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. A quarter of the Americans, according to this, say that they have never heard of Benjamin Netanyahu. Now that, that says to me that a lot of people in the United States are simply not watching the news and they're not reading the newspapers. How can, how can you, you can not know 
that the Prime Minister of Israel is Netanyahu. His name comes up almost every time the states mention in the foreign press. Now, another uh, eight in the 18 to 29 age group, only 13% of respondents felt confident in Netanyahu's handling of world affairs. Now that's interesting. First, we're told that uh, about a quarter of Americans never heard of him, never heard of Netanyahu, and now we're told that in the age group of uh, below 30, 13% uh, uh, felt confident in uh, his handling of affairs. So to, to me, there's something, I don't know how much money these people get to make all these uh, reviews, but it's, uh, what, what conclusions can you draw from the fact that 25% of Americans don't know who Netanyahu is to begin with. He's a, a, the prime minister of the country in the news almost on a daily basis. At any rate, um, many, although party affiliation seems to have an impact, almost 50% of Republican voters have confidence in Israeli prime minister's global leadership. Again, I, I think that uh, I don't want to knock, if that's the word, the Pew Research Study, but I really don't know what conclusions you can draw from them. Now, uh, the U.S.-Israel relationship remains strong, according to respondents in the most recent, recent poll. And 74% described the relationship between Israel and the United States is good in both the Democratic and well Republican camps. College-educated Americans were more likely to say that the relationship between Israel and the United States was good, and those with postgraduate education being most likely to feel that America has a positive relationship with Israel. Now, if you have to draw a conclusion from this, you have to say the more educated you are, Americans are, the more they have a positive attitude toward Israel. So uh, I guess that's the kind of conclusion you can draw from this. By the way, just as a final point, there's a significant, significant disagreement over sentiments that U.S. President Joe Biden is too strict or lenient to one of the sides in the Israel-Arab conflict. A majority of Americans, over 60%, was unsure, unsure whether the president was favoring Israelis or Palestinians. But about 13% felt he was favoring the Palestinians over the Israelis. And only 13% felt he was striking the necessary balance. Now, if you take all these numbers together, it simply says to me at least, that's one of the reasons I covered all these detailed numbers, it seems to me most people in the United States have simply no idea of what's going on in the Middle East. That is my conclusion from all these uh, numbers, and uh, of course uh, the listeners can draw their own conclusions, but uh, I guess a further conclusion would be that these numbers are totally meaningless, and the Pew Research Institute gets paid a lot of money 
to produce numbers that mean nothing. That's my opinion. I uh, give my opinion to the listeners. Of course, you can have your own opinions and draw from different sources. Now I want to turn to a subject which uh, I generally don't touch upon because, as I often tell my listeners, this is a a once-a-week program and I can't get involved in the intricacies of foreign relations, just uh, read the headlines. The news is that uh, a gentleman by the name of Jack Lew, L-E-W, who used to be the uh, American uh, Treasury Secretary, the news is that uh, he's the front runner to become the new U.S. ambassador to Israel, and many people find this deeply concerning. He was uh, the um, back under the time of the Obama administration. Uh, he was um, he was the Treasury Secretary, and he was the former Chief of Staff, and. Uh, he came out uh, at the time in June uh, 2015 when uh, President Barack Obama's negotiating team was dealing with Iran and came out with the so-called JCPOA, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Uh, he came to uh, and spoke to Jewish audiences and told them what a wonderful thing this agreement would be. Now, we all know that it's not a, a good agreement because uh, apparently the um, Iran is on its way to obtaining nuclear weapons, so this whole JCPOA was pretty much of a failure as we can figure so far. So, um, it, 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 if you check the records, it seems that Jack Lew has promoted a, a number of anti-Israel policies. The, uh, he included support for the um, very anti-Israel, anti-Semitic UN Security Council Resolution 2334 right at the end of the uh, Obama administration that pretty much condemned Israel and which the U.S. did not veto in the U.N. The, uh, he was supported the discontinuation of American vetoes that support Israel at the U.N. Security Council. He insisted on the creation of a dangerous Palestinian Arab dictatorship state on Israel's land. It was opposition to moving the U.S. Embassy to Israel's capital city, Jerusalem. And he, uh, he blamed Israel uh, for, uh, or actually blamed our Prime Minister Netanyahu for the partisan divide regarding Israel. Was the partisan divide that was created by President Barack Obama, for which Jack Lew was U.S. Treasury Secretary. The, he claimed that Netanyahu was more hostile to Obama than Obama was to Israel. He opposes Jewish communities in Judea and Samaria and Eastern Jerusalem, and he didn't uh, like the fact that our Prime Minister Netanyahu 
made a speech before a joint session of Congress in Congress back in 2015, and he called our Prime Minister's speech a provocation, which is a pretty strong word to use against a speech that was uh, made before two houses of Congress. Now, it's interesting, by the way, if I go back to that, uh, that anti-Israel uh, resolution in the UN, uh, 2334, uh, what he said at the time was he said the Obama administration didn't vote for it, and by downplaying the resolution and simply carrying out U.S. administration policy opposing settlements, one of the truth of the matter is that that uh, U.N. resolution was really a nasty attack uh, on the uh, state of Israel. That resolution in the United Nations falsely labeled Judaism's holiest places like the Temple Mount and the Western Wall, and as well as Judea and Samaria and the Jewish quarter uh, of uh, Jerusalem and the Hebrew University, Adassa Hospital, and uh, it, 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 the, the, uh, this UN resolution referred to them as occupied Arab land. And it falsely claimed that the Jewish presence in these historic Jewish lands have no legal validity and constitutes a flagrant violation of international law. In other words, the U.S. stood aside while the U.N. under uh, passed a really anti-Israel resolution. The U.S. had a, an opportunity to veto this, and it didn't. And now the people in the administration, the American administration, defended this position. One of the people defending this position was Jack Lew, who now is rumored to become the next U.S. ambassador to Israel. As a matter of fact, interestingly enough, Rabbi Professor Doe Fisher, who is a rabbi and a teacher in university in California, wrote an open letter uh, after the UN vote against Israel, this uh, resolution 2334, this rabbi wrote an open letter imploring Jack Lew to resign as Treasury Secretary in solidarity with the Jewish people. And the truth of the matter is, According to Rabbi Fisher, he wrote to Lou that this was his moment to become, to take a place in Jewish history by putting standing with the Jewish people above the government position that Lou had attained. And Rabbi Fisher reminded Lou of the great Don Isaac Barbonell, who was a finance minister to Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand back in the 15th century in 1492, although Barbonell could have remained in his high position in Spain, he instead joined the fellow Jews who were being expelled, the expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492, and this high Jewish leader in the Spanish government chose to stick with the Jews and leave Spain with them. And this is what 
Rabbi Fisher wrote to Lou saying it's a chance for you to stand with the Jewish people. So uh, Lou missed that opportunity and he sided with the Obama administration's hostility to the Jewish state. So obviously if Lou is nominated as the American ambassador to Israel, I'm sure that Israel will accept him. That's the way things are. But a lot of issues, additional issues, will be need to be explored. The, uh, for example, Lou was a Treasury Secretary at a time back when Obama was sending plane loads with about almost $2 billion worth of cash to Iran. So the, uh, it's interesting, the, uh, there are those who are saying now that, uh, that the Biden administration may be using Lou's Jewish identity as a cover to protect the administration from, from charges of anti-Semitism while the administration continues to push Biden's uh, anti-Israeli policies. So the, the, the bottom line is that elevating Lou to the important position of U.S. ambassador to Israel uh, is, uh, is really questionable whether it's wise. The, uh, we know so far that Biden is widely viewed as disrespecting Israel and his prime minister. It, it, was a, it wasn't until now that he had finally invited uh, Netanyahu for a meeting with him. And the uh, U.S. administration under this president has interfered in uh, Israel's internal affairs, especially we're going through a period of great difficulty concerning judicial reform, and the American administration has taken a position in that against some of the judicial reforms. The U.S. has sent about $1.5 billion in funding to the Palestinians and through the UNRWA. The and the U.S. administration has pressured Israel to take steps that harm its security. So um, the, the choice of the American ambassador to Israel, which will, I'm sure, be approved by Israel. Israel doesn't want to start a problem with the United States. Uh, I think that the, the history of Jack Lew is really a questionable one regarding uh, the state of Israel. And uh, so we'll see what it'll be. But I just uh, want to get this information on the table. The choice of this ambassador will take place probably in the next several months. So let's keep our eye on the headlines. Till next time, Jay Shapiro, thank you for listening. Be well. Signing off.